Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Matthew Newton. Matthew is the author of Shopping Mall, out now in Bloomsbury Press's Object Lesson series, and the director of publishing at Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His work has been published by the Oxford American, the Atlantic City Lab, Forbes, The Rumpus, Guernica, and Spin. He lives in western Pennsylvania with his wife and two sons. Matt and I met when we joined the writing editorial board of Looking at Appalachia, a multimedia project that considers the region 50-plus years after the war on poverty. So, as you might imagine, Matt, like me, is a writer preoccupied with place. In his new book, he focuses on the shopping mall, considering it as a phenomenon, a cultural artifact, and a place of personal growth and discovery. From his childhood days greeting his mother after her shift to the local department store, to the often awkward teenage years when he was struggling with severe clinical depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder, Matt writes a personal and cultural history of one of our most ubiquitous institutions. We talk about how places, physical and conceptual, shape our identities. We also talk about Dawn of the Dead, balancing the personal and the general, and the question to ask before you start your next project. I just wanted it to be one of those things where people were like, wow, this was just like such a special, weird little book. I mean, that was kind of like in the back of my head all the time. Like, that's, I feel like if I could accomplish that, I'd feel happy. did your obsession with shopping malls, is it fair to say that you have an obsession with shopping malls or when did your, your fascination with them kind of begin? Very early. I mean, it's kind of as young as almost I can remember, I, I guess. Yeah, and, I, and I think it's fair to call it kind of an obsession, you know, um, and, and it, but I, I guess I should qualify that by saying it's, it's an obsession more for like, I feel like the emotional connection to them and like the way I sort of feel like physically and mentally when I walk into a mall, you know, it's definitely not a, um, it's definitely not like, oh, I want to go shopping thing. You know, I mean, it's, uh, which I feel like I get to in the book sort of, but you know, um, it's, uh, so yeah, so, you know, not to go off on a tangent that way, but you know, I think, uh, I would say from a young age, you know, I started, uh, you know, my mother worked at um, a department store called Gimbel's, which, you know, there's was, you know, around the tri-state area and maybe further, you know, tri-state being like, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio. Um, and uh, when I was a kid and, you know, some of my earliest memories of being probably about four years old or so or going to pick her up, uh, you know, drop her off at work and pick her up at work. And it just felt like this very, um, you know, kind of magical kind of wonderland, you know, to go there and, and, you know, walk around the toy department and, you know, see like the, the ponds and the, the little bridges and like all these, you know, like and the fountains and the, um, in like the concourses and thoroughfares. And so like, that's kind of like my earliest memory. So I would say it really kind of dates back to that, to that time period, really, you know, like in my early childhood. Yeah. I was really struck, uh, when I was reading it cause you know, my, my mom's family is from Uniontown, which is kind of near Pittsburgh. So like we went, like Pittsburgh was where we would go to go to like back to school shopping, you know, that was like the good mall shopping. Um, and, and there are those malls around there that are so like architecturally like, I don't even know if ornate is the word that I want, but like, like you're describing with like the ponds and the like little bridges that just like don't need to be there, but these like kind of ornamental footbridge type things. And, and I feel like no other mall that I've been to, unless you go to like a really swanky mall, like, I don't know, it's a really peculiar experience that I had forgotten about and was reminded of reading the book, just how they do kind of feel like their own weird, um, I don't know, like biospheres or something. Yeah, and I think that that's definitely, um, uh, those are like holdovers from like the very first malls, you know, that were built like in the mid-1950s where there was actually like, 
it was you know architects were mindful of the idea of that these were sure that these were places to to shop and to you know to buy things but they were also supposed to be like these civic spaces you know where where people could hang out where there would be like conversation pits and there would be um uh you know uh like these great fountains like you know I mentioned but also like you know cafes along the along the concourses and you know there was all different uh attention paid to those to the actual social aspect of it and I think that that you know when you look at more you know modern malls and even like malls that have been around forever but that have been remodeled sort of time and time again all of that is a has a sense all of those really great sort of social sort of textural elements that really kind of give it you know give a place it's you know give them all its personality have really for the most part been kind of eradicated you know i i was surprised or i just didn't expect uh the just quite like how personal the book would be and how much of a through your life you do kind of have this through line that you can you know kind of map feelings and and certain periods of life onto the shopping mall so can you talk a little bit about just like you know what it meant to you past the the first age that you're talking about when your mom was working there you know like when you're a teenager what did it symbolize for you right um yeah i mean i think that you know as you know as a, as like a as a young kid i think it was it really was just that wonderland sort of feel like i mentioned you know when my mom worked there but yeah uh when i was a became a teenager i think it's i mean i think for any you know for so many teenagers where the mall was sort of like this you know this sort of town square for you know suburbia um it really represented like that first those first steps into freedom, you know, like it's a very controlled freedom of being dropped off at the mall as, you know, as like a, you know, junior high school kid or high school kid. And, um, but yeah, I, I think what it became for me, um, was really like this place that I could just, you know, um, be exposed to all these different aspects of, you know, just like being like a teenager, for example, of like, oh, well, here's, you know, and it, here's like the music store and this is where I can find like the music that I'm interested in. Even though like I didn't love all the music that was in any record store in a mall, I could find my little pocket of music that I was interested in or at least some representation of it. Uh, same with like a bookstore, like, oh, I could find like magazines that I was interested in or get exposed to graphic novels or get exposed to like books that I was excited about. So it's like, you know, I mentioned this in the, in the book, but like in many ways, at least for myself, you know, as a as a kid of like the 80s and nine, you know, coming of age in the 80s and 90s, the mall was very much like the internet before the internet ever existed. You know, it was like this weird sort of like uh, cabinet of curiosities that you were able to sort of, you know, stop in for a few hours and you know hang out with your friends, but then also be turned on to these different different aspects of culture, whether it's you know video games or you know books or music. So that was, I think that's why as a um, you know, as a teenager, it became so important to me because it was like a mixture of like that freedom and then also that sort of exploration that you have of like trying to, you know, carve your own identity out in the world. Right, right. Was it something that you had to kind of realize that you had a book in? You know, I feel like sometimes when you are so obsessed with something or something is such a fascination, it's almost like too inherent for you to see. Like, you know, were you had you kind of been writing about it as a concept and then thought like, Oh, there's a little bit more here. Or how did the idea of a book about it come about? Yeah. I mean, I had written like a uh, um, fairly long, like essay about, about malls, I think like a year or two before, um, uh, before I started like thinking about, you know, this as a book. And that was, I just had realized like, I was really fascinated by like more the sort of like the psychological connection that people have and like the sense of loss they have when their mall is either demolished or closes for good, you know, because it, it, this is really against the backdrop of sort of like post-recession and even like several years after that, I think I wrote the essay back in 20. 20- 
2013 or 14 or something. And it was, it was really this idea of like, I was just fascinated by the fact that how many people like how I wasn't alone about the sort of emotional feelings about them all. Like that it was so many people, you know, I'd seen uh, so many people had the same reaction and I had, you know, this was at the time when so many articles online were just collecting, basically putting together like image galleries of, 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 um, you know, abandoned malls and, and spaces that had, you know, old like courtyards and malls that had been overgrown with, you know, uh, plants and vegetation and it was sort of abandoned. I mean, then that whole sort of like ruined porn, you know, canon of like, uh, like here's these photos of these sad malls and what does this say about our country you know those kind of weird posts that you know so many websites you know published just for clicks really for the most part but i i ended up like you know being sort of annoyed by how many of those posts that i would see online but then i also like always gravitate to them only for the comment section because the comment section to me was fascinating and that people were it became like this sort of strange therapy session for everyone you know where they were just just telling like you know, all these great stories about their connection to it and why it was important. And it always ended up going back to people. It was more about the relationship with, you know, mothers or fathers or friends or, you know, um, uh, just like, you know, so many, so many relationships to people's experiences of first, like oh, the first time they got their ears pierced or the first kiss they had or the first, you know, first time that they were out on their own and they would, you know, it was like as far as like away from their parents. So it's like, it ended up being like such a human story as opposed to like really anything to do with consumerism almost, you know, or any of that. So I was really kind of fascinated by that. And that's, I think what really, I started thinking about it more holistically. I think about how it had become part of my life uh, more than I realized, I think. That's really interesting. Were those commenters responding to each other as well? Or were they just kind of there to tell their stories and then sort of back out? Yeah, I mean, it would depend, you know, like on the website, like sometimes, but like a lot of times it was like, you know, people building on one story on the other, you know, and it was, I mean, I mentioned one of the things, one of the, one of these particular posts really stuck out to me. It was this story like published on, on Buzzfeed, like I guess maybe back in 2014 or 13. And it was, um, it was very much in that way that like people were replying to other people. And so they were almost talking to each other, but then they were sort of also just, um, just, I felt like, like unburdening themselves of, of certain stories, you know, and things that they were just, just sort of generally sad about whenever it came to them all or just emotional. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it was, you know, sometimes I'd run across them and they were conversations between people and other times it was just commenters sort of like, um, you know, commenting just on, on, on their own experience. But then as you read through them, it became this like really, you know, sort of enthralling sort of tapestry of like these stories, you know, that people had about their experiences. How did you go about starting to research the uh, the actual history of them? You know, the book opens with you going to the Mall of America. No, I'm sorry, it's not the Mall of America. It's another mall in Minneapolis, right? Yeah, it's Southdale Center in Edina, Minnesota. Yeah, which is um, just right outside of you know Minneapolis. And uh, yeah, so that that started with um, I, I I mean I guess I should backtrack. I mean the the idea for the, like as far as the structure and everything was concerned, like I. Um, I had the structure for the book like fairly early on, and, and which like, is kind so, of a which is a, a kind of lifespan, right? And so it's really like kind of two lifespans. It's like my own lifespan and the lifespan of the mall, you know. And that was kind of the goal. And of course, you know, luckily mine isn't over yet, and neither is the malls. But you know, like there's like the, as far as lifespans are concerned. But like they, they it kind of is, is designed to give sort of a snapshot of both, I think. And um, yeah, so as far as like the research is concerned, I having that frame, like that outline, was really helpful. This idea of like you know childhood, adolescence, and adulthood was really was really kind of great as far as like you know me just then 
having to fill in the gaps really like kind of sketch in, in inside of each of those different frameworks but um i really felt like there needed to be some sort of like defining uh kind of introduction to all of it so that's really what prompted the idea of uh going to southdale center in edina and because that's that's it's not the actual it's not the very first the idea of what, what the very first mall is is like very um kind of a contentious topic among folks that like want to claim their city as having the first mall but as far as like uh, malls are concerned and sort of like the prototypical malls that you think of that Southdale center really is, was like the beginning of like mall culture as far as like two levels, you know, enclosed malls that have, you know, um, anywhere from like a hundred to 150 stores in them. So that was, it's really, you know, there were, there was predecessors to it. Like in Appleton, Wisconsin, there was like a strip mall that had like glass around it essentially, but it wasn't the same as like what this kind of this big, huge sort of like, um, uh, you know, enclosed mall became. And so anyhow, that's, that's really where, that's really where this whole, this whole, um, this whole research kind of began, I guess, for me, I really, I really started researching like Victor Gruen, who was the, um, you know, the Austrian born architect who came up with, uh, who designed Southdale center and who went on to have like a very, you know, successful career designing lots and, you know, like lots and lots of malls across the country, but also being very active in urban planning and, and other, um, other initiatives, of course, in architecture. But didn't he kind of like, he kind of like disowns it at a certain point, right? Right. Like he's completely like, he's completely, um, by like 19, I think it's almost like, I guess it must be like late seventies or something like that, or early eighties. Like he's completely like in, in shock at like what malls have become because he, you know, he has a European sensibility. He wanted to replicate like, you know, like these sort of quaint streets in, you know, small European villages, but, you know, just enclosed in a climate controlled environment, you know, and, um, and that's what these first malls actually sort of do. They echo that, that sort of sweetness of those kind of, you know, like European little towns, you know, where there's like a cafe and there's, you know, there's great like lush plant life. There's all these, you know, like little fountains, there's all these, these great little flourishes that he put into it. But by the time, his concept was really kind of bastardized and really like completely changed. Um, when he was older, he was really just in shock at the whole, at, you know, at the, at the whole sort of evolution of the mall and was really um, like supposedly very crestfallen and, and very upset about it all. Was it easy to find kind of literature on the topic? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because people, there's a lot of people who are fascinated by malls and there's, there's like great, um, you know, there's there's tons of great like blogs that people have run on their own, like online and things like that. But it was, but I find that it was, I found that it was really kind of hard to find what I was looking for all the time. Like there was, because I was always looking for like that more emotional appeal and that more um, like that idealistic sort of utopic idea that like Victor Gruen was trying to put forth. So I ended up reading um, reading some books that Victor Gruen had actually written. Um, uh, I can't remember the subhead of the one, sorry, but it's like the heart of the heart of the cities is is one that he wrote and. Like he really talks about like the early impulses for the mall, and um, and uh, he references you know like uh, this sort of um, this Garden City concept of you know like the Crystal Palace that was put forth in like the late 1800s, which was like like the first idea for a mall, and um, and so he I mean he he was very interested in like the history of of retail and the history of commerce and like how and how you can kind of make these spaces, you know, these public sp- public spaces better for people. And, and so, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a lot out there, um, but it was like finding it was the hard, it was kind of the hard part. Like what kind of, what, what really applied to my particular take that I was trying to put together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
How about the personal stuff? I mean, especially the stuff when you're talking about, you know, your childhood, do you, um, did you have to kind of do anything to help yourself remember certain things or get yourself back into a mindset? That was just a lot of, you know, talking to like, uh, you know, I have an older sister, so I would ask my sister a lot of questions. I would ask my parents questions, you know. Like, <laughs> Were they like, what the get, hell are you doing? <laughs> right, just like trying to get some sense. Yeah, and I think that everyone's, um, everyone was sort of like, oh, what, what is this book again? You know, I think trying, trying to be, um, I mean, they're very aware of what I, what, I, what I was doing, but at the same time, like, oh, like, why are you asking that specific question? So it was like, just trying to, you know, get a sense of, of that time period, because I, I end up, you know, because memory is such a weird thing. So that's like, I tried my best to do sort of my own, my due diligence. And also a lot of like newspaper archives were, were a huge part of like trying to actually then anchor things to time and place, you know, so I could, um, so there's a lot of Google newspaper at like, um, or sorry, like researching where I would like, you know, kind of try to plot like what I, you know, when I know like the time period that I know, like my mother worked there, but then try to see what was actually happening. Like what kind of ads were there for the mall and things like that in newspapers. And I, I was able to find, you know, a ton of, a ton of that, a ton yeah, of that stuff. Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting, um, to, to find all that. But then of course at a certain point, as, as you know, I'm sure, you know, from your own like experience, like writing and researching and how much work that is, it's like, it's kind of, it's quickly can be overwhelming because there's, this is a small format book. I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like a novella size, but at the same time, I just kept finding things that I felt like, oh, I have to put these in. This has to somehow fit in the book. And so of course, so much stuff didn't fit because it's just a, you know, a certain point, like people are going to be overwhelmed by the amount of detail you're trying to give them, you know? Right. Also not to put my bad habits on you, but I often, I'm just like, well, I'll keep researching because I don't want to write yet. <laughs> right. No, I definitely found myself lost sometimes in research for like way too long where I'm just like, okay, I, the only way I can write this is if I keep researching it. And I actually had like, um, the second chapter in the book really has to do a lot of heavy lifting for, um, the idea of, you know, uh, white flight and, or, and, um, suburban sprawl and all these different things, but also like talking about specifically the mall that I grew up going to, which is Monroeville mall, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, which is famous for being like the, also the setting for George Romero's, uh, uh, film Dawn of the Dead, which is like this zombie opus, you know, um, and kind of cult classic, but like that, that particular mall is also trying to find out the history of like the grand opening and like the developers who made it, you know, who built it. And like, when did that, when did all of that work start? When did, and how does that tie into like, you know, overall, um, you know, progress in like the urbanization of Pittsburgh. And so it was, you know, it's, it's hard cause you don't want to go too in depth and make people completely bored. But at the same time, I was, I'm really fascinated by, by that anyhow. And like the idea of like this sense that, um, that the city was changing and, and Pittsburgh was really like, it's a, it's one case, but it's also, it's, it was happening in cities all across the country. You know, it was happening in, in New York and, um, in Chicago and Detroit. A lot of these same instances were happening where people were leaving the cities and main streets were sort of, were starting to die as like mom and pop businesses couldn't compete with what was happening in the suburbs. So there's, it's all tied together, of course, but at the same time, how do you tie it together without overwhelming everybody, you know, like overwhelming the reader, you know, with like, you know, too much of one thing, but not enough of another. So it's, that was, that's definitely, I feel like was a challenge. With, yeah. Uh, and I think it's know. so hard too, when you're talking about such sensitive issues, like you want to arm yourself by giving as much information as possible, but then like exactly what you said, that's not the, you know, it's not the format a, and like not actually the, the full point of the book. So right. threading that needle of like, okay, well, how do I talk about, you know, 
racism and white flight in a way that is sensitive, but complete as I can be. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely had, and that, that's why that the second chapter in the book just felt like I kept going, I kept writing other chapters and then going back to that. And uh, I think I finally found the right balance for it, I think, but it was just like, um, yeah, because it's huge. I mean, you know, people are writing entire, people have been writing books forever about, you know, since like since the 60s about like urban renewal programs that shaped the country. And I mean, Pittsburgh is one, like a laboratory, was a laboratory for urban renewal and um, actually also end up becoming like kind of like a, a, a cautionary tale of like well, how what not to do in many cases. I mean, some, some of the initiatives were successful. So it was like knowing that there's all of that very loaded history that like I'm not going to be able to address by any stretch, you know, the way that like, other writers have or other researchers have, but by trying to at least like give a hint, you know, give a nod to it and mention that it's, it's all part of the picture, but, you know, and try to do that, do justice to that. Right. And this is part of the object lesson series, uh, which is Bloomsbury and is it Bloomsbury and the Atlantic? Yeah, it's like a partnership between Bloomsbury and the Atlantic. And the Atlantic's role essentially is they they more commission essays that are sort of representative of like the object lessons sort of like ethos. But they um, so that's really I think that what their role ends up being in 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 like the partnership. Right. Okay. So it's in this Bloomsbury series, uh, object lessons. Did you have that in mind as a goal uh, to pitch the book in in that sort of format? You know, I kind of didn't. I I knew about the books. And then um, the way the book came about was like, yeah, that I, um, there's this woman, um, Susan Clements, who's actually, uh, who's a proofreader and editor on the series, like not not the series editor, but she also does like the indexes for the book. Um, You know, we were kind of friendly, you know, through social media. And then she, um, she had just recommended that she said, oh, I think you'd be great for the series. You should like try to, you know, maybe put together a proposal. And it was like, one of those things where I just thought like, oh, I wasn't really looking to to work on a book about malls, but then I felt like given that sort of, uh, framework of like what the series was, it actually, I kind of liked that challenge. It was, it was really appealing to me. So then I put together a whole proposal, wrote some sample, like a sample chapter, did all that kind of work and then shared it with them and, uh, with a series editors who are, um, uh, Ian Bogost and Christopher Sheberg. And, um, they essentially, um, you know, we went through a whole long submission process, but that, you know, uh, or like approval process, but yeah, then they were really actually most excited about the idea of it being a personal take. You know, they liked the idea of it being all filtered through like a personal viewpoint. Is that how you had originally pitched it in the proposal? Yeah, it was basically the idea is part memoir, part case study. Yeah, and I think and you do a really good job of it. It's so hard to pull off that kind of first person reported uh, and, and to like give everything the right amount of weight at the right times. No, that's well. Thank you. That's I appreciate that. I'm I'm completely concerned about it. I don't know. I was I'm like unclear if it, if it came across well. But it's always good to hear. That, no, uh, I think I'm so, sure I'm sure you felt that way because you read your own words so many times and you're just like, oh God, who cares? All right, and, the, and the, of course, the first thing in journalism is like, you know, you're not supposed to be in it, and if you ever are in it, you really have to. Um, there has to really be a good reason that you decide to put yourself in the story. And so that's a little different, obviously with memoir. I mean, it's completely different, I guess, not a little different, but it's, you know, also with, so with this, it was like, okay, like the story is going to be told through, from my perspective as much as just like a more kind of like, um, kind of cultural journalism perspective, however you would think of like some of the other work and or other, you know, sort of topics that I cover in the book. But yeah, like what, you know, can you, can you do justice to like your own personal story and make it, make it compelling, you know? And, uh, hopefully I've done that. I mean, I, I tried my best though to like, not like to never get too detailed, but I really want it to be, I don't know how to explain it, but like, I, I really want it to be this kind of book that after somebody read it, they were just sort of like, this is like the weirdest kind of great 
greatest collection of things, you know, like about the mall. Like, I mean, I don't want to say greatest, but like... Like I, a little just, cabinet of curiosities about the mall. Right. Like, I just wanted it to be one of those things where people were like, wow, this was just like such a special, weird little book. I mean, that was kind of like in the back of my head all the time. Like, that's... I feel like if I could accomplish that, I'd feel happy, you know, like that I think that I'd done something, you know, carved out a little niche that was kind of worth, you know, worth the effort, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And I think that, you know, ultimately... I mean, it's kind of a variation on right, right, what you know, right? It's like the 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 weird, the most idiosyncratic that it can be. You know, the most that it could only have come from you. Kind of the better off you are. Right. Yeah, and that's what I felt like I tried to, I tried to do. Where like there's there's certain specificity in the book where I I realize it's probably going to be like lost on certain people. But I I love that kind of specificity when I read, where I I know that it's like such a um, like even if it's just like you know mentioning an album that you're listening to and you're in the car or mentioning like you know sometimes deciding to mention like a neighborhood by name as opposed to just sort of generically lumping it in to say oh Pittsburgh or something like that. I feel like I love that sort of like richness when I read. You know, and like to like because I I'm. I'm such a person that's, I think, um, really interested and kind of compelled by place and like what it means, you know, to people. And so I like, I tried my best to like, I feel like walk that fine line of giving, giving like random names of places occasionally where I, where I think people would just be like, Oh, like that reminds me of, of home, you know, or whatever, you know, like it, it reminds them of like, they'll think of their own neighborhoods or places like around their house, you know, around where they live. So I feel like there's a lot of that where it's like, like you say, that sort of specificity or that idiosyncratic kind of detail that's like, yeah, like you can tell this is, you know, this is specific to the author and it's, and it's special, but like I can totally relate to this in my own life, you know. Right. Uh, along with the books you read for research, was there anything that you read in a more kind of creative inspiration way of like, I, I would love the book to accomplish X quality like this book does? Uh, yeah, and it was probably like reaching a little bit high, but I read, um, I reread uh, An American Childhood by Annie Dillard. Oh, I haven't uh, read that. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it's it's also it's. A, I mean, she's from Pittsburgh, and um, I just um, I loved it the first time I read it, and then reading it again was sort of like, oh, this is really really beautiful, and it's like. Um, and I'm not comparing myself to Annie Dillard at any stretch. I feel like she, every sentence she writes is like perfect. But um, uh, what I really liked about it was like. How, what I liked about her, what I love about her writing and specifically that book is how she can kind of slip in and out of like, there's like a dreamy quality with the way that she writes. It's very like, you know, kind of, it can be very like lyrical and you don't even, you don't even, uh, you almost don't even notice it because you're in it, you know, but then, and then she can slip out of that and get into this almost more journalistic approach that she, that she has where it's like, she's giving you this great detail and, um, but at the same time, you're not, you don't feel like you're stumbling over the sentences or, you know, it's there, there's just something that's very, um, just like appealing and um, inviting about her writing. So I feel like revisiting that book was really helpful because it made me really think about, I just really liked the way she wrote, wrote about being a, being a kid. And I feel like I needed that to really help start the book out. You know, that was like really beneficial. Did you start to feel by the time you got the end of the, the writing and the researching process? Um, because like you, I am also very interested in place and, and the way that place shapes people's identities. And, and I wonder if you started to feel like malls had the same sort of appeal, you have this really great line that I can't remember fully. It's something about a neural, like a universal, like neural pathway or something. But I'm wondering if you started to feel like each mall became very specific to the place that it was in. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, um, I mean, even though malls are like, have become so, and, and not even just malls, but retail in general. Like it, it's like you could be dropped down in any city in America, and it feels like 
you just feel like it's so familiar to you in many ways. But I also do feel like just because of the sameness of like the way Target is like always laid out when you walk into it or the way that like a Walmart looks, you know, from the outside. But I, I definitely felt like when I was in a diner, you know, to, to write, you know, to research the beginning of the book. It did feel like I. It had a certain specificity to it, you know. Like it had a very. Um, it had a. Even though, like, it reminded me of like malls back home, like in Pittsburgh. There was still like you could, like you could just see by the way that people walked around there and the way that they sort of felt comfortable there. That it, it totally, it totally had, um, like just that hometown sort of like town center feel to it. So, even though it's like the backdrop is is like very underwhelming. It's just like a bunch of kiosks for like, you know, acne cream and, uh, you know, like teeth whitening, you know, stations, but there's still like, there's still a sense of ownership. It feels like, you know, when you go into a place like that, like of the, of the community. So yeah, it's, I did, I did definitely find that like the, everything still feel each mall when you go to different malls still feels like it has, you know, something, some personality of the, of the community is still there. Like almost like, uh, despite the fact that I think mall developers are trying not to have that anymore, they're trying to sort of snuff that out, you know, that regional identity. Right, right. And and this project is actually in keeping, in a sense, with a lot of your interest as a writer in kind of decline and rebirth of places. And, you know, you write about Pittsburgh a lot and uh, just talking about, like, the Rust Belt right now is such a is such a rich, you know territory yeah. for that um can you talk a little bit more about what it is about those sorts of themes that compel you yeah i mean i think um i i, I think you know speaking more like specifically about the rust belt i mean i i think what's always really appealed to me about uh i mean it, it kind of goes back to what you say the idea of like write what you know i think is is, is probably the impetus for a lot of this a lot of my interests but at the same time um no, just this idea that especially in Pittsburgh, that, that so many of these places and, and places meaning, you know, towns and um, uh, not just towns, but like the schools that are in those towns and, and, you know, like the local grocery stores and the restaurants and the bars, all of those places that were built for the original intent of supporting, say, mill workers in Pittsburgh, like all of these places have literally outlived their original purpose, you know, and I, and, um, and so I grew up, I feel like in Pittsburgh and I grew up in the eighties in Pittsburgh and that was really like a very down, a down cycle for Pittsburgh where, you know, there was, you were seeing lots of like vacant homes and you were seeing lots of, uh, you know, economically impoverished, uh, mill towns because the mills had pulled out like in the seventies and early eighties. And so I think that really just like left an impression on me for like, um, I mean, just, I remember growing up as a, in, or as a kid feeling like a general sense of like like just sadness and depression, you know, because of that. But I, I feel like it's, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of uh, how, you know, how people kind of go on and how people have stayed here. I mean, so many people stayed in Pittsburgh through all of that. I mean, a lot of people did leave, but so many people stayed through it. Um, even though there wasn't necessarily a place, it wasn't, there was no livelihood to be had, you know, in many, in many of these towns. So I, I think I'm just drawn to that idea of like, almost like these, I think of Pittsburgh, at least the people that stayed here throughout all that, almost as like this sort of survivor culture in many ways where people have, have, have hung in there because they are, they love the place where they live, but at the same time, that that place where they live wasn't necessarily providing them with a great life anymore, you know, after like all that industry had kind of faded away. Right. Yeah. And I think that's such a, it's such a fascinating idea because at least speaking for myself and, you know, the the same kind of interest is colored for me by the fact that I did leave. And so, so I'm kind of always thinking with that lens too, but like, I, I still, I, I can see like 
in in where I'm from, you know, I can I can look at it and say like, well, I still get why you would why you would have this connection that would be so strong that you couldn't leave but if i go like anywhere else i'm kind of just like why don't you just leave you know like i think it's oh, really hard yeah. to translate that feeling unless you've kind of just lived it for so long yeah and i, I mean I, I still have that feeling like i i um i mean for years i feel like especially you know like um when i was in high school like in the in the mid nineties, you know, when I graduated high school and a lot of people were starting to leave, like, I just felt like I was in that same group of everyone I was just like, Oh my God, I just got to get out of here as fast as I can. You know, I just don't want to be here. And then I ended up like, you know, going to school here and entertained different ideas, but like, you know, started like I did a cross country trip with my girlfriend at the time and we, you know, we were doing all of these things. So it was like, Oh, well that's I'm getting to see the country. But it was like, there's always like something that was like, it just felt like at that time period, like the only way you could ever do anything is if you left here, you know, like there was nothing, there was no reason to stay, you know? And, um, and, and I think that like at a certain point, you know, um, I then like just had this like sort of, I always had this kind of like love hate relationship with Pittsburgh for years where it was like, Oh, you know, then when I didn't leave, it was like, well, I really should have left, you know, why didn't I leave? You know, and there's, and I mean, I tried, you know, I, I, you know, I interviewed for, for great jobs and like almost, it almost happened that it didn't happen or like, there was always something, you know, that I felt like kept me here. And then once we had kids, I really wanted to stick around uh, for family, you know, for my kids to be, my sons to be near their family, like their grandparents. But it was like, I mean, I know what you mean because every time I go anywhere else and I mean, I've, I've had jobs in the in the recent past where I like had to really travel a lot, and it was like there's just so much more beyond here that like I could just see never turning back and like looking at any of this again. Right. And so I I think it it almost now I feel like I mean I, I just turned forty this year, so it's like um, I almost I somewhat feel like a sense of obligation I think as a writer right now to to do something about like writing about this place, you know, um, even if it's just through my own personal lens. I mean I think this book does it a little bit, you know. I think it really kind of puts a little bit of a stake in the ground about Pittsburgh. I think it's like, I think it's respectful, but honest about Pittsburgh, you know, in the, in the ways that it's, it's, it's sort of discussed here and there throughout the book. But I also think it speaks to a larger, um, I think it speaks to a larger issue that a lot of people have grappled with, like, you know, like kind of with identity, like growing up in Pittsburgh and like, what does that mean? And um, always feeling like sort of like a, not even like a third rate city, but just like a, not even like a city considered, you know, it was almost like shameful. I feel like at a certain point to be from Pittsburgh, like people would be like, oh, I'm sorry that you're from Pittsburgh. You know, like it was like a weird thing for so long. So I think that that idea of place to me just sort of takes on a different, um, I don't know, like it's, it's, to me, it's almost become this weird and I'm not a very, I'm not a religious person at all, but it has like sort of a spiritual quality to sure. it to me, at least right now, to, you know, like all these years later where I feel like I want to at least sort of honor, honor it in some way. Um, and it's not always like, it's not always complimentary. Like I don't always feel like I have very great things to say about, the, about Pittsburgh, but I feel like I try to be honest about it, you know, and honest about like the problems we're dealing with. I mean, and we're, you know, we're dealing, you know, particularly dealing with them now. I mean, in this area after the whole, you know, after the election and, and what's happening, you know, all through this whole area of like Appalachia and the Rust Belt. Well, I want to jump to uh, your actual, the actual writing process. Um, so, because you, uh, you also work at the Carnegie Museum of Art, you have a full time job, um, and you write a lot as part of that job as well. So, how do you kind of fit in that? You know, like how did you fit in working on the book? Like, I don't know how nuts and bolts you want me to get, but I mean, um, I definitely had a, I definitely had a whole plan for how to make it. Oh work. yeah, I, no, um, talk about your plan. Um, so essentially, uh, once I, you know, the, the book, I actually had 
the book was already like submitted and in process and, and, and I think had just been approved before I started working here. And then, uh, so essentially, uh, and I didn't have to start working on it right away when I started here, but at the, but at the same time, I was very open with my, with my boss about it and just said like, Hey, I have this thing and you know, um, this, this book project and I'm going to be working on it. And so, um, I just said, you know, however flexible my schedule could be. So, um, when I got really, you know, serious into the writing of it after I'd done outlining and tons of research and I really needed to just spend like large chunks of time writing, I um I actually just changed my schedule where I worked four four ten hour days and I had one day off a week. Uh and I which put a lot of pressure on me. I did I mean I already put a lot of pressure on myself like I know a lot of people do, but it's like uh but it was really great and at the same time, you know, I was able to spend like a whole day writing. I would wake up at like six, I'd start writing at like seven. Uh, and, I, and sometimes I would write from seven to like midnight. It was like ridiculous. And wow. like, yeah. And it's like, I'm a super slow writer. I feel like I'm, and I would take breaks of course. And a lot of times I would like dedicate like a morning to research. If I really was like in, in a, in a, in a like specific, like mess with like a chapter where I was like, okay, I really do need to like figure out the research here and what needs to get cut out. So it was like almost like re-outlining something. But, uh, I was just, you know, I'm, I'm just like, and I also have two kids, of course, so I have a lot of time. You know, I'm just like, I'm doing my best to like make the time that I'm writing. At least I have to produce something, you know. And sometimes it's like brutal, but um, other times it was more like, you know, seven to five, I'd write and then I'd be done, you know. And other times it was, but that was really how it worked. I mean, I just, uh, every week I had like a dedicated like whole day to write. And that's what the way I was able to make it actually just happen for myself because I can be really, you know, kind of slow on writing and like rewriting. And I feel like I'm one of those writers that edits as they write, you know, like I'm, I'm not the person that can pour out like 3000 words and then like come back to it like a day later and then trim it all down. Like I, I want it to be like pretty close to done whenever I'm like working on it, which is really something I'm actually, I've gotten a little better at. So that was really um, what worked for me. And then I would also wake up, um, I try to wake up early on, um, like on the weekends, like before, like my, my sons would wake up and try to write a little bit, like just for, for clarity, like revisit the stuff that I'd worked on on whatever the, my full day of writing would be for that week. And, um, and I also would write on lunch basically. So like I'd take lunch, you know, like my lunch hour at work and I would go like outside if it was, you know, summertime and sit outside and, and, and write like for an hour, like an hour, you know, and I mean, sometimes that only meant like I got a page done, but it was helpful, you know, to like kind of fill in the gaps and almost have like a targeted, like, okay, I have an hour. Let me see if I can get like, you know, a couple hundred words that are of, of some use to me, you know? Right. Right. And you mentioned the outline. Is that usually how you operate? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've, um, I never really used to outline things, uh, like earlier on when I, I feel like I started writing when I first started writing and, but I, I even, I kind of do that now, even just for essays, I really try to outline. I mean, it often will change, but at least I put together an outline for what I know I want to hit, you know, like the ideas that I want to hit and then, uh, it will kind of go back. But for the book, it felt really necessary to do the outline. Um, because I just knew like there was so much stuff I wanted to kind of touch on. So I, yeah, I mean, outlining is a thing that I feel like I'm trying to get better at. And it's, I find that when I have that sort of skeleton to work from, it's like super helpful because then I don't feel like I'm just like driftless and have no, have no particular like direction I should be going, you know? Right, right. Did you work that, start, start to finish, like beginning to end of the book as it is now? Uh, I tried to do that. That didn't work very well for me. I just ended up jumping around a lot, you know? Um, but the outline was, that's actually why the outline is helpful because then I knew that like I had to write to a certain theme or a certain idea, you know? So I would, like I, I wrote the prologue first 
I think I wrote the first chapter. I wrote chapter one first, which made sense. And then it was like, then I went backwards and I worked on the prologue. And then I think like I was stuck on chapter two forever. And that's why I jumped ahead to like, I think to like give myself something fun to do. I wrote the mall madness chapter, which is sort of like set inside the mall madness game. You know, so yeah. like, like so which just, was I, really fun too to be reminded of the Mall Madness game, which I loved. Yeah, no, and it's it's funny because I never, um, I had never really played Mall Madness, so which was like kind of ridiculous. So it was like I like um, ended up getting like vintage games, and I like we never played it officially with my son, my, with my sons, but like we got them. We were like putting all the pieces together. We were like checking everything out, and I was now we're like okay, we got to play it. You know, we got to oh, actually yeah. play. It. <laughs> um. But yeah, so that was, um, I, I think the outline was really great to have because it was like, it kind of gave me the freedom to sort of jump around from like chapter to chapter and not feel like I was going to um, completely like go off the rails, you know, by doing that. And also I find that like I can, I can totally linger on something for too long. And then if I don't have like a backup plan, so every morning, um, or I was, should say on the every day that I like dedicated each week to like writing I would um, have like a plan before I sat down to write and it was sort of like, okay, I'd like to work on this first and I'm going to work on that. But if I hit a wall, here's my like contingency plan for like, okay, I'll, if chapter two like doesn't go where I want it to, I'll, I'll finish up chapter four because I know it's close and then I'll jump to this. So like, I feel like having that plan was really helpful for me because I have a tendency to like, I know that I have that tendency to get stuck, you know, in my head on like a certain thing where like, I'm just like determined to complete it and get it done even though like I might not be having any good ideas about it, you know? So it's, that was, I think a challenge, you know, the biggest challenge to kind of break out of these same habits that I've always had. Yeah. And I mean, even to just like identify those habits, I think is really difficult. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, I, I still, I still can like notice, you know, I still notice that I'm doing these same old things, especially for like at the museum, if I'm working on something for um, the online publication that I run and it's like, I realize that like, yeah, I probably should just step away from it and um, not, continue to like beat myself up about this certain like you know these certain passages that I can't get through or whatever it is so it's like it I think it's just that awareness which you know sometimes you know depends on probably like uh that whatever the moment is when you're writing sometimes I'm more aware of it and I'm able to like shake myself out of it and other times it's like I'm totally just like you know beating you know kind of like beating myself up about the same thing right yeah and it's always those moments that like you know the the tried and true advice that is advice for a reason to like go take a walk or like go to yoga class or something. I'm like, Oh, I don't have time for that. Whatever. I can't. And then inevitably you do it and you're like, Oh no, I figured it out. Well, right. And like, that's totally, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm the same way. Like I never want to like, you know, take that sort of like super simple and useful advice that like, you know, like your neighbor would give you right. or like your parents or, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, well, that would make too much sense. Like, I'm not going to, I'm just going to suffer here for like six hours and I'm just going to figure it out. And it's like, no, like you could probably be nicer to yourself and just, you know, <laughs> let these things, you know, like give yourself a little breathing room. So you might like your brain might start to work the way you want it to, you know? Right. What is your writing space? Like you have, um, I believe from Instagram, right? A, like a detached writing studio in your, at your house. Yeah, well, I actually, um, when I was writing the book, I, I still had, like, I had a studio space in this town uh, uh, nearby here that's called Braddock, and I had a space in, like, a in like an artist, it was, like, a whole, um, it's a whole building that has, it's, like, an old school house that has uh, different artist studios in it, and I actually wrote, the, I wrote the majority of the book there, I would say, um, but I did, like, toward the end of, like, finishing up the book, I uh, had been wanting to have, like, a but wanting to build like a shed in my backyard that would be like a writing shack, almost like a raw doll kind of, you know, like 
uh, place to kind of escape to. Like he had this great, yeah. you know, this great like little cottage behind his house. But, um, you know, I'm not exactly like a, you know, like a, uh, like a tycoon of industry or something. So it's not like I have a lot of like money to buy anything. So I ended up <laughs> or to build anything. So I actually ended up buying a, um, I found on Craigslist a, it was a, um, a shed that was actually, it wasn't even a shed. It was like a, it was an, it was a building that was built as an office for a used car lot. And I bought it on Craigslist for like 1600 bucks. Whoa. <laughs> and I got it. Um, and and then it just like shows up on the back of a truck. Oh yeah, and I had to like be one of the guys that was helping like strap it to the bed of the flatbed truck that like picked it up and everything. It was crazy. I mean, I went and I bought it, um, and uh, you know, uh, went we went to the place and they literally picked it up off the ground. It had been on the, it was only like about six years old or something, but it had been on the lot for like six years, and so they kind of had to like you know be kind of delicate about getting it uh, onto the back of a truck. But then they brought it. You know, I think it was I can't remember how far away it was, not super far, but like you know, brought it like maybe like like. 12 or 15 miles and then dropped it in the bottom of my driveway at my house, like in my backyard. So, um, yeah. And then I worked on remodeling it and, uh, getting it all together. And so that's actually the space that I write in now. It's like a little 10 foot by 12 foot room essentially. Um, and it already had electric run in it and they had insulation in the walls cause it was for like, that's where you would, you know, sign the paperwork for your car. And they had like, there was actually even like a little lock box on the wall that had like some keys left in it from like a bunch of, you know, cars that hadn't sold or something. I don't know. It was very weird. Yeah. So it's, it's actually been really cool. I still have a little bit of remodeling to do on the outside of it, but I'm finishing that up actually here, like in fall. And, um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it actually. I was, um, it's been a really good space cause it's like, you know, just go out there and like, I'm still at home, which is nice, but like, you know, like my sons know, like, yeah, don't like, like if I'm in there, like, you know, let's have some space and, you know, like it's time to like write and that sort of thing. So it's been, it's actually been really good. And I actually finished up, uh, the last of the book and that like I'd had it all together and finished up like the, like the final chapters of the book when I, um, and so in the writing space, you know, and like the little studio in the backyard. I was just uh, doing another interview yesterday, and we were talking about how the kind of ideal situation is like exactly what you have. Because we were like, you know, it's really so much nicer when you can go to a dedicated space because it really like sets your brain up for like, that's what you need to do right now. But then like, it's so nice to just be at home. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that's actually been... um that's actually been what's sort of nice because it was always like, um, having this other space was just one of those things where it was like, I don't want to, you know, it'd be like late at night and it's like, okay, I should go, I should go there. And, and it was very close to my house. I mean, it was about a 10 minute drive, so it wasn't like it was bad, but it was also one of those things where it was like, well, you know, and I got to go there and then in winter it's like, oh, I got to, got to get it heated up. And I got, you know, there's all these things you have to do. And it was just like, it was still nice to have that space to go to, but there was just something that felt like so much easier just to like have it at home. And your kids are pretty good about respecting the, uh, the space of it. Yeah, for them, I mean, they think it's like the most incredible thing ever um, because it's like a little house, you know, um, physically to them. So yeah, they're they're pretty good. Like when they know when I'm working, they know like not to like to come in and interrupt me. But then I also I've been teaching them both how to play chess. So then we like play chess in there, and like we listen to records, and we you know like so because I have stuff in there, you know, of course I have like a stereo and I have different things. So like they they get to see, you know, they actually get to have fun in there too and hang out. So it's like a nice mix of the two. Do you like to listen to music when you write? You mentioned the records. Yeah, I listen. Um, I, I have to listen to instrumental music, so because uh, I can't listen to music that has words, because I get completely thrown. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'll listen to like. I actually end up listening to lots of like, um, like soundtracks and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so it ends up being kind of my, you know. And sometimes I, 
sometimes it's just better not to have any music, honestly. But like I do, um, like to set a mood. Sometimes I'll do that where I'll just listen to like you know a specific soundtrack or like there's um there's this uh, he actually died this year uh, David Axelrod who's like this incredible like kind of like jazz composer who did a lot of super orchestral work but it was also like um, really jazz influenced and it was like just very cinematic and beautiful and he's like my go-to guy to listen to like whenever I want to like set a mood in my own in my own head to like you know kind of get into into the mood to write you know I have the same thing I can I sometimes just want silence and sometimes want some kind of noise but uh can't listen to words either and I've been listening to a lot of those uh Brian Eno like airport albums oh yeah yeah and they're they're like it's a whole different mood but you know really nice kind of like just background yeah, and I think that that yeah, there's something about that I, that I find really useful. And sometimes that's even if I just for, like when I'm first sitting down, like for the first hour or two, like if I have that if I have that much time, like to you know, like kind of helps get me in the, get me in the mood. And um, same like uh, like along the lines of Brian, you know, like I'll listen to like Philip Glass, you know, who's like super like um, like is always good to a certain point, but then like whatever albums of his that I have, like it gets to be that, that sort of manic like convergence of like all these like, and then I'm like I can't think. Anything. Yeah, like, this is a problem. No. <laughs> I've had this exact same problem. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's always like, how do you, and I just wish I could, like, I know people, I know writers that like just put on headphones and they listen to like just normal music and they're fine. Like, I just don't know how that works. Like I can't do that. Yeah. No, I think that they're like compartmentalizing in some very incredible way that I don't have the skill to do. Yeah. They're probably like the same people that can like, uh, like, you know, how drummers can use like different sides of their brain. I feel like to be like totally like coordinated while they're doing different things at different speeds, you know, like with like their hands and their legs. Like I don't get how to do that, you know? I wanted to talk to you too about publishing because I was refreshing my memory on your website and you've done a lot of stuff when like a lot of really cool modes of publication. So like this book is maybe more traditionally published, but you've done zines and you've done like small press books. And how does this, how do all of those experiences kind of compare for you? Where do you think you, you like the most? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, doing your own stuff is just always, um, even though it's hard, uh, it's always, of course, it's hard as far as like you have to figure it all out on your own, but there's something nice about that. Like the zine, like the zines that I've done are fun because it's always a collaboration with like a designer I know or something like that. And that's always exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this has its merits. I mean, I, I will say that um, it really was a great, it was a great group of editors because I had like two editors at Bloomsbury who were like the series editors. And then I had um, like, really it was more like almost like the managing editor um, uh, whose name is Horace and he was great too. Uh, so it was like, it was kind of fun to have that like, um, because when you're working on things on your own, it's always like sort of just in this, like, you, like to not have that, those people to bounce ideas off of as much. Like when I would publish scenes, I'd still like share them with people I knew, like friends I knew to like kind of get some feedback. But um uh, this was kind of nice to just, you know, have some, you know, actually just have these editors that are kind of dedicated to that book and then send them a question about like the chapter I was struggling with or something and then to get this great feedback. So it was, it was actually really nice, like really kind of refreshing, you know, to have that sort of like support system built in, you know. Right. Yeah. And and what were their edits like? Was it, I mean, I assume at this point, you know, because with nonfiction, like you've sent in a proposal and an outline and they've approved. So they've approved kind of like the skeleton of it. So is it more just kind of line editing at that point? Yeah. I mean like, yeah, they, yeah, definitely. It's like the, uh, they, they approve like, yeah, the idea essentially, you know, and then you have to basically uh, have that idea fully realized. But yeah, I mean, some of it was line editing and some of it was actually just more like giving, uh, 
just kind of saying that like if, it, if the concept was there like yeah I love this I think you should go with this idea some more and I'd like to see more about this and so that you know like the, the prologue everyone really liked the idea of the prologue and then um and then as I worked through it and shared some, some, some of the, you know, some samples with them from the prologue, I feel like, you know, they really talked about how like they, you know, like the prologue generally does in a book, it really helps kind of set up the book for the reader. They really love the idea of how like the prologue could essentially mirror the, um, the three sections of the book, you know, with childhood, adolescence and adulthood. And, and so that was really like just, I mean, it's like things I had in mind already, but then just getting that sort of affirmation from them that they thought that that was a great idea and that they would then, you know, give a little notes here and there. Like I had a little bit more of like, like I kind of went off on some tangents, I think, in the in the prologue that like, uh, you know, one of the editors was like, oh, I, I think, you know, you're going to save some of that for later in the book. You know, things like that, like that were kind of helpful that I didn't um, like just going into like maybe a little bit too much personal depth within like trying to tease that out a little bit more like throughout the book as opposed to like too much in the beginning. So it was, things like that were good to have. Um, like all that guidance on it was really, that was really nice, you know. Do you have another project going now? Do you know what you're going to work on next? Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, I'm actually in the midst of getting a writing group together, which has been kind of fun. Um, that like essentially like an accountability group where yeah. we can all sort of like, it's going to, it's going to be four people, I think. Um, so that, and, um, so that's kind of my next step as far as like kind of keeping that, that sort of discipline that I had to write this book to try to keep something in place for at least a couple meetings a month with this group. And yeah, but the, the project is, I had been working on it actually before the mall book and I'm, I've been reading back through a lot of the drafts that I have and it's, it's this, it's, um, it'll be a memoir, but it'll be more, more specific like memoir about, um, I mean, more, more, you know, generally it's about, um, my experience in high school and like being diagnosed with like severe clinical depression and, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, which I allude to in this book a little yeah. bit, but, um, but really kind of talking about that, um, in a very, I mean, I hope like a very sort of like narrative and sort of lyrical way. Like I, I'm, I'm trying, I've been like revisiting all my notes on, on the drafts that I have. I mean, I have, I basically have a few chapters drafted and I have a lot of stuff outlined and some, you know, some skeletons of other you know pieces to put together in the book. But I'm just at that point, which is a fun, which I'm excited about. It's like, okay, really looking at it and being honest with myself. if like, this is the next one that I, next thing I should work on, you know? Right. And I feel what's really, I don't know if you have this problem too, uh, but what's really hard for me with that is I tend to get very excited about things and then can forget about them almost immediately. And so, like, I get really invested in an idea and then I have to just, like, kind of check myself and be like, are you doing that weird thing where you don't actually care about this? Right. I mean, I know this does not sound like that because this is obviously a very um, close subject to you and something that you've written about before. But but in determining, like, am, am I going to do this next or am I going to work on this right now? That's always a problem that I have. Yeah, no, and I think that's hard because I think, you know, it depends on what the topic is and, like, how how invested you're ready to be for – because I realize if I do this, it's probably a couple of years at least, you know, um, of time. So I'm I'm trying to, like, you know, just more kind of explore the idea now. But I, I will say that, like – with this shopping mall book where I didn't get into, I mean, there's a lot of personal stuff in there. So at a certain point you're like, you're kind of sick of yourself, you know? Um, and I feel like I was sort of there for a long time with this where I was like, all right, I'm sort of sick of myself. Um, just as more, more just like trying to find that nice balance of like first person narrative. But then, um, and I'm, I'm, so I have my little bit of my concern is that with, with this diving into a memoir, that's really, that's pretty, you know, it gets into some pretty messy, messy territory. And, but I, I feel like in the end, it really could be an important book, but I don't, you know, it's hard when there's so many memoirs. It's like, you know, where does, where does, you know, where does it fit in the, in, in the scheme of, you know, what a reader's looking for. And, um, 
and I think too, I'm sure, you know, you were taught this too with, with writing. It's like, you're supposed to ask yourself, like, who cares? You know, like, why, like, why is the, you know, why is this important? Like, who's going to care about it? You know, and, and like in a, in a good way, in a challenging way to mm-hmm. yourself, you know? So I think that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, uh, I've, I've also workshopped a lot of these, uh, I guess, sort of like the topics in, uh, in this book already, and like a workshop that was sort of about like mental health and things like that. That was just specifically for writers, and it, you know, it it got a lot got a lot of great feedback, and so I feel like pretty good about. It. And I already have like an essay published that's going to end up being a ch- uh, most most of a chapter from this. So it's like I I feel good about it. I just don't know you know if that's the way um, that's the next step or not. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? I feel like I'm actually, for the first time uh, in my life, feeling like I'm kind of hitting hitting on that. So I would say that, um, you know, I, I have, you know, I have, uh, I mean, I don't even want to call it really a day job, but, you know, I'm, I'm director of publishing at Carnegie Museum of Art, and that's actually, which is fairly new, that's happened recent week or recent month or two or so, but um, that's actually really, um, I feel really you know, very passionate about that. And, and so that's really like been very fulfilling for me since I've been here for several years. But I mean, this, the the role of actually like working on stories and um, getting to work with really great writers and editors has been really fulfilling. So that's always been a thing I've just wanted to do. And I've, so I feel like I've been doing that now for several years and I've been feeling very fortunate to be able to do that. And, um, and also trying to really kind of continue uh, to write and just kind of get, I think, get better and as a writer and get more, in tune with like being honest with myself, you know, being honest with when I tell the, the stories that I tell that I'm as honest as I can be. So I feel like it's that balance of like, you know, feeling like I, cause I feel like I'm a person that builds, like likes to build things, like put things together. So like, you know, I like, like the editing aspect of it and I really do. And I never want to like back burner writing. So I feel like I'm trying to really balance those two. So I think that's, that's definitely like creative satisfaction. I think for me. Visit us online at wmfapodcast.com to find links to some of the things we talked about today and to subscribe to the show and the WMFA newsletter, which includes episode notes and exclusive content. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Get in touch at hello at wmfapodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.